0: I've had an opportunity to meet many of you, and once again to be inspired by by the tremendous talent that seems locked up away from the instruments of power, or from any voice in, in in this school nightmare we have. But but it's 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 very reassuring that eventually we'll get out of this. I'd also like to give you a plug for something I read. Last night, there's a lady here from Canada who's the editor of just a grand magazine called Natural Life. So there's an unsolicited plug for Natural Life. And finally, I'd like to dedicate this morning's talk to a great American family who's been an inspiration to me now for three years and to thousands of other people around the country, Day and Pat Ferenga, who spoke here and their kids. I think they're the best of what America's made of so this this farewell this valedictory will be a little bit about my mother my mother took in stray animals mostly homeless dogs and cats but if a hurt bird's wing needed repair birds also and if a turtle was crossing the road too slowly she made my father stop the car so she could get out and carry it to the other side of the road when dad objected to how many animals our household was supporting mother took to setting large dishes of Nabisco dog food in our backyard for the wanderers It was an act of generosity that made our house look like a kennel and drove my father frantic not least because he was the manager of the local National Biscuit Company and so the supply of dog bones was (laughs) endless. The other day I was reading Proverbs, a collection of advice set down by King Solomon 3,000 years ago, and I came across these words, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Suddenly I realized what my mother had done all those years that I thought she was just feeding animals. She was speaking up for those who could not speak for themselves. And reading further into Proverbs, I found this line, Happy are they who are generous to the poor. Reading those words, I realized I had part of the secret that made my mother happy for she was happy most of the time I was growing up in spite of having a full share of her own troubles she was unfailingly generous not just to outcast creatures but to anyone who came to our door for a handout to any neighborhood person fallen on hard times and needing help I had a little lawn mowing business in those days I was about 13 I remember in particular the widow with young children whose lawn I mowed for free because my mother asked me to. I resented that at first, but after a while I came to love it. I suppose I, re- I read Proverbs the way most people do who pick up a Gideon Bible in a motel room. I jump about not looking for anything in particular, So it was while randomly turning the pages at one of the 260 motels I've stayed at in the last three years that I found this judgment and by implication, this warning too. There is joy for those who seek the common good. When I hear that, I remember my mother's beautiful Christmas trees that took her days of hard effort to create as she sought her family's common good I remember her collecting kitchen grease and metal scrap for the war effort in the long gone days of World War II for the community's common good and her fierce defense of equity as the head of the school's PTA, her founding of a Cub Scout troop when nobody in Monongahela who was male could be persuaded to do so. I remember the joy she brought to so many undertakings of my boyhood as she pursued the common good. The London Economist announced recently that 70% of all the lawyers in the world are in the United States. We have 25 times the number of lawyers per capita that Japan does, three and a half times the number that England does, two and a half times the number per capita of Germany. If you add our public and private practice lawyers together, about one in every 250 Americans is a lawyer. What could the meaning of this be? (laughs) Seventy percent of all the world's lawyers. Before he died, Joseph Campbell, the, the myth man, took note of our enormous legal fraternity and he called it The way Americans talk to each other, the way employees talk to their bosses and brothers talk to their sisters, lawsuits are the way we get the other guy's attention because we have lost a normal interest in each other, lost our concern for human face-to-face justice, lost the taste for plain speaking that marks a healthy people. Looking at the great tradition of English common law, there are only two reasons to bring a legal case at all. First, that someone hasn't kept a promise, has not done what they said they would do. That gives rise to contract law. And second, that someone has encroached on another person's rights and done harm. And that gives rise to tort and criminal law. So if you're looking for a new way to mark the crisis in American society, if you're wary of hearing about teenage suicide, weary of hearing about teenage suicide, divorce, crime, violence, alienated brothers and sisters, murder, drugs, even one more time, then think on the barometer of crisis represented by 70% of the world's lawyers collecting under the American eagle's wing. There must be... A tremendous number of us breaking our promises, a tremendous number of us encroaching on rights to support such a horde of barristers. We are forgetting I think how to live together in families and in communities, forgetting the necessary personal duties that make families and communities in the first place, in a rush to get out from under personal responsibility to escape how often do you hear the cry let them do it they get paid for it i certainly hear that cry every day in new york city them can mean the police or the street sweepers or the social workers or any of another any of the other number of occupational titles that have come into being only recently we live for 200 years and more in this country without police. How was that managed? These occupations signal our transition from a world of human beings who live together and care about each other to a world of institutions and hired hands, a world of agents instead of principles. What does it mean that we break promises so often that an army of lawyers can earn fine and, of course, unregent supervised livings, punishing them. What does it mean that we encroach so often on each other's rights, that an army of lawyers is needed to seek redress? How did the country survive so well its first 200 years without police or without many lawyers? When we abandon personal responsibility for the common good, which Solomon urged us not to do. What does it signify? What does it mean for your future and mine that a price tag is set on simple services that through the long history of humanity were freely exchanged and freely given, like sitting with the sick, caring for the old, even caring for one's own children, or like mowing a poor Widow's Lawn. If it means something frightening to you, as it does to me, then what can we do about it? At the turn of the 20th century, a profound social thinker in France named George Simmel wrote a remarkable book called The Philosophy of Money. In it, Simmel, one of the great creative theorists of this or any other century, said that money contained within itself a powerful internal contradiction and it was built into the foundations of its abstract existence this contradiction it could not be gotten rid of. He said that money robs things of their innate identity and replaces that core identity with a money identity by making everything interchangeable with money money often cheapens things and removes their significance. Simmel said that whenever genuine personal qualities like service were offered for money, that the pricing of these things inevitably trivialized the service which had been priced. Such services tend gradually to become degraded. They're never as good as they are in the first few years they're offered, to lose distinction just exactly as if the money itself sharply reduces the value of what is being purchased. Now, even though that was written over 90 years ago, it still has a shocking and almost crazy ring to it. But Simmel was quite serious, and generations of blue-ribbon readership have found enough disturbing truth in his words to keep them available generation after generation. Simmel also said, whenever genuine personal values have to be offered for money, one finds that a loss of quality in individual life takes place. So not only does the service decline in quality, but that the life that gives and purchases that service declines in quality also. For instance, in prostitution, which is a limited kind of temporary marriage for sexual purposes and for money the monetization of sex leads according to Simmel to a terrible degradation of personal value on the part of the prostitute and on the the purchaser of the service. Both prostitute and client are worse for the experience not better. The sale of compassion is in welfare work The sale of concern, even the sale of a helping hand in many instances, leads to the same destination. At some point, pricing eats away the intangible quality of service and the central value of what is offered is destroyed. It's a complicated idea, but one well worth musing upon. It's a subtle idea that requires not an instant rejoinder, not an opinion in response as might be asked for in a school classroom but a long period of reflection before you decide where you stand in regard to that. Now think again about the meaning of the American lawsuits. Think of all the broken promises they represent, the cloud of bogus services misrendered for which redress is being offered. Is it just barely possible that the shift after World War II from manufacturing to what is now called a service economy is part of the reason for our visible unhappiness as a nation, just as the earlier shift from an agricultural economy to a manufacturing one brought a sharp increase in general misery in its wake. Is it just barely possible? that when most of us don't accept the obligation of free service to each other as part of the social contract, but instead assign the job to specialists and hired hands, that rather than the joy King Solomon promised us, the payoff is its opposite, grief. Well, I don't know the answer to that, but I do have an interesting bit of recent evidence in support of George Simmel's theory. In 1971, the United States National Book Award, which is quite a spectacular prize to win for nonfiction, went to a book called The Blood Relationship, a book which undertook to explore whether valuable things given to another free were more or less valuable than the same things given for money. The commodity the author took for his test of this proposition was human blood. He made an imaginative cross-national comparison of the quality and the availability of human blood in countries that charge for it like our own and in countries like England where it is given away. Almost all blood in the United States is purchased wholesale and then resold several times for several profits. Almost all blood in England is donated freely, and then it is given away for no charge. The book's conclusions aren't the slightest bit ambiguous. Everywhere on the planet where blood is sold, the quality of the blood is terrible. The prices are sky high, the shortages are common, and wherever blood is sold, there is also frequently great danger to the purchaser of the blood. I mean, it's a national scandal now in covering up how many people have gotten AIDS from blood transfusions. But there's an additional intangible cost of selling something like blood. Where blood is bought and sold, the community loses the tradition of giving freely to neighbors and to strangers. And where that tradition is lost, the donors of the blood lose the joy gained From service to the common good. In other words, a social and ethical corrosion ensues from the marketplace in blood. Communities that provide their own blood needs without cost are healthier for that. And in many ways, people seem happier in those communities. Transforming blood into a stuff of commerce is one, inefficient in economic terms, two, It's inefficient in supply terms it's hard to get blood to meet the demand where it's given freely there are seldom shortages of blood and three in quality terms it doesn't add up the social cost in addition is high u.s. blood the most heavily commercialized in the world is also the worst blood supply in the world the lesson suggested by my mother by Biblical Solomon, by George Simmel, and by the blood experience, I mean to be a lesson for parents and schools too. When schools consume the youth of the nation in confinement and all the products of all their labors dissolve into paper to be thrown away, there is no joy possible in seeking such a good. The pricing of, of time... To a currency of grade points establishes an irrational medium by which something irretrievable and precious, time itself is corrupted in service to arbitrary and meaningless urgencies. Experts who are the sellers of school services to government have consistently misdiagnosed and misdefined the problem of schooling. School problem is not the children don't learn to read, to write, and to do arithmetic well. Those deficiencies are directly byproducts of errors of our purpose. The larger problem is that kids hardly learn at all the way schools insist on teaching. Schools desperately need a vision of purpose because the vision they now angrily promulgate is a dishonest one. It was never factually true that young people learn to read or do arithmetic primarily by being taught those things. They are learned, but they are not really taught at all. So, all the immense, intricate technology of school product is just so much hokum. Overteaching interferes with learning. Although the few who survived the practice may well come to imagine that it was done by an act of teaching, through an act of teaching, that is, that they learned. Colonial America, it is easy to demonstrate, was massively literate without any systematic or compulsion schooling at all. For many decades, an artificially induced hysteria about basic skills has been the cover story behind which we were intimidated into abandoning children to a form of confinement schooling which simply doesn't work. Behind this mask, valuable lessons of service to a vibrant community of real human beings have been denied the young and denied all of us except for school teachers. All of us, except for school teachers, have been denied healthy interaction with children that adults need in order to remain fresh and vigorous. That's what Rousseau meant when he said you will never get control of the minds of children as long as they mix freely in the community. It's too exhilarating and productive for everyone they mix with. And I believe the same is true of old people as well. You need to confine these groups away in some form of isolation before you can properly treat the residue, the middle ages, the most pro- productive workers, that you can properly treat them as instruments. So give and take, take and give. Children desperately need the lessons that volunteer service, apprenticeships, and work study teach, but instead they're kept in holding pens with others of their own age and social class. They are priced and valued according to their ability to adjust to this unhealthy regimen, to remain passive, to take orders, to maintain a cheerful demeanor while their time is being wasted. Children give nothing but are then rewarded for becoming quiet parasites. This has been, I think, the formula producing extended childishness in the outlines of a caste system in the United States however well it has served the economic institution of mass schooling. After struggling at the bars of the cage for a few years, most kids just give up and settle into the low-grade activities of the school. The relentless rationalization of educational experience to one flavor, confinement schooling, has left the modern student a prisoner in a disenchanted world without meaning. Our cultural dilemma here in the United States has nothing to do with children who don't read very well. And I wrote this speech originally about a year before Hillary Clinton said this. Mrs. Clinton and I are certainly on opposite sides of many issues, but on this we're not. The real dilemma in the United States lies in the difficulty of finding a way to restore meaning and purpose modern life. There is no point in reading if it seems to lead nowhere. We have progressively stripped children of the primary experience base they need to grow up sound and whole by pricing abstract study higher. The great irony has been that while we devalued service and life experience, abstraction has followed the path George Simmel predicted it would by being priced it too matters less and less the dynamics of this process operate unseen to begin with the natural sequence of learning is destroyed without experience the sequence in which primary data hands-on experience must always come first only after a long apprenticeship and rich and profound contact with the world, with the home, with the neighborhood and its people, does the thin gas of abstraction mean much to most people? After 26 years of classroom teaching, I slowly realized that what Benjamin Franklin, what he must have realized as a teenager, that only a few of us are fashioned in such a peculiar way, that we thrive on an exclusive diet of blackboard work and workbook work and talkbook work. What we fail to take into account is that most children, rich or poor, really learn by involvement, by doing, by independent risk-taking, by shouldering real responsibility and not being parasites, by intermingling intimately in the real world of adults in all its manifestations. When we set up a laboratory universe in which our children are confined with anonymous strangers certified by the state, then we have created in advance a world of failing families, wrecked cities and blasted individual lives. Then we have created the theater where a mathematical bell curve seems to describe the human condition in which few children have any real talent. This is a colossally cynical act it is only prolonged in the face of its deadly effects because school factories and all the forces which service them have become become an integral part of the money economy the lie of our own unexamined premises has given us the horrible children we complain of as a nation indifferent children cowardly children dishonest children selfish children children who disrespect their parents and adults in general, who hurt each other, who trample each other's rights in exchange for worthless prizes like blue ribbons or school grades. Eventually, these are the children who grow up to be clients for the nation of lawyers. I'll let you finish the rest of that sentence yourself. Children who will one day break contracts and encroach on the weak if an opportunity arises, and why not? For such is the example that 12 years of schooling has provided, breaking of contracts encroaching on the weak. The logic of confinement schooling in the middle of a democracy is a contradiction of our original national character. It breaks the contract of the Bill of Rights, using as its justification that kids can't learn any other way. They just can't be trusted with responsibility, and neither can their parents. And the truth is exactly the opposite of that. Unless they are trusted with responsibility, they cannot learn much, and under the thumb of central compulsion, the lessons they do learn are bad lessons. School encroaches on the right of each new life to test itself against the needs of the real world and to alter those needs by its own investment. Schools are a training ground for irresponsibility because irresponsibility is nearly the only thing they are set up to teach. Schools desperately, as I said, need a vision of their own purpose. At present, they are exactly what many suspect they are. They are government jobs for children. And the worst kind of government jobs, the make-work kind, they're not really jobs at all. There's nothing or very little to do in a school. Our elite high school texts are on the level of fifth-grade readers from 160 years ago. Instead of listening to Mr. Sizer or Mr. Gardner or the Carnegie Corporation, grab yourself a handful of school texts from the days when school wasn't compulsory and look exactly at what's been done to us. It has not happened by accident. And dumbing down the work isn't merely some sinister conspiracy, although certainly it is that, too. It has become more and more a necessity as generations of well-schooled children reproduce themselves become parents, and have nothing to communicate to their own children. So the damage is cumulative, and it is fast becoming insupportable. Look around you at our society. We've created a whirlpool of addiction, and when I use the word addiction, I never think of drug addiction. Addictions much more unmanageable than drug addiction. Addictions which children and grown children use to avoid confronting themselves with their own uselessness. We are reluctant to face this narcotic reality of our common society because it acts as a criticism revealing much more than we care to face about the real source of our difficulties. We have forced children to become irresponsible for all their natural youth. It is no wonder they hate themselves and hate us. No wonder they cannot recover. If you cut a man's legs off when he is a boy, they will not grow back when he is a man. With the growing public alarm over the effects of science and technology on societies all over the world, we are soon going to have a chance to rethink the basic questions of education. Questions which have very little to do with reading, writing, and arithmetic, but much more to do with the fundamental questions of human existence. In what curriculum shall a good life be found? How should we all live? What shall we do with our children? My own suspicion is that systematic government compulsion schooling is doomed. Whether meetings like this occur or not, that it's doomed. There's no way to tinker with this thing to make it work much better than it does already. And soon the monopoly is going to have to be surrendered because it hurts people too much and it is far too expensive. If well-schooled children are the goal, they can be turned out at a fraction of the cost of government-schooled children. John Chubbs of the Brookings Institute responded to charges that breaking the government monopoly would hurt poor children and children of color by producing figures that showed private and parochial schools are far better integrated than the public schools are at about half the cost. But frankly, I don't think the world can afford well-schooled children at all anymore, whether they come from the factories of government, of church, or of private industry. We need a different kind of man and woman to tackle the future. The kind of young people who accept the obligations of living joyfully and with responsibility. To get to this new place, we need a vision of what an education is and what a school should be. Only out of a clearly spoken vision can come the mutual hope we need to find ways to get there. Curriculum is only the Latin word for a race course, the path by which a horse gets to its destination. We have not even begun to agree as a nation on a destination for education that is worthwhile. Beating other countries, scoring well on tests, getting a good job, all these are low evasions of what the human spirit really needs. All are ways to duck the truth that we have failed thus far to pay the price in argument and debate, in agony and in love that a strong vision would cost us. Without a vision, all the talk about reforming curriculum leads nowhere. Unless we can convince ourselves, our children included, that the new course is worth following, it will not work any better than the old course did. And why should it? a political state by its very nature provides a vision that misfits human nature states are exercises in power and coercion not exercises in wisdom if we learn to read better and were given time to reflect in our youth I think we would all realize this a vision certainly the people who founded this country and gave us the bill of rights, understood that clearly that the state was no guarantee of your rights, but just the reverse. That's why schools aren't mentioned at all in the Bill of Rights of the Constitution. Not a word, not a hint of it. They understood what it was a kind of colonization of the human mind. A vision has to be a destiny far beyond winning beyond money, beyond, as the gentleman said yesterday, schools should be about, it should be about good health and money. For the question always reemerges, good health to what end? Money to what end? Why are we doing these things? Messy and as unpleasant as it will be for a practical people like Americans are, the sequence has to start with clear goals. In a democ- and if, if the town can't provide you clear goals or the state can't provide you clear goals or the nation can't, then you've got to provide them for yourself. In a democracy worthy of the name, goals come from the bottom up, not the other way around. It will be messy if it's done right because hundreds and thousands of separate agendas will be set in conflict by any attempt to change what is and we will learn finally that we need multiple visions, many different curricula. There is no one right way. If I guess right, we don't have a choice. The present race is almost over. The whole food supply is in jeopardy for one thing. Breeding stocks of fish along the California coast are at the lowest levels in history. Cape Cod Bay, where once fish were thick enough to walk across is a dead sea in many places. The radical conclusion forces itself upon us that our oceans are dying. In Kansas one bushel of irreplaceable topsoil blows away for every bushel of corn raised by factory farming methods and that is true in all wheat and corn growing states. The food value of chemical agriculture's harvest is already much lower than the natural harvests of old-fashioned farming. If my guess is right, we need to construct a new vision of what education is and we need new race courses on which to run that vision. The government can't do it for us, that's been tried for a hundred and forty years in monopoly schools and they just got worse and worse And the more tax money you surrendered, the worse the schools got. The two lines follow each other neatly on a graph. And they are correlated. If it could be fixed, it would have been fixed by now. There is no correlation between the play money of grades and the play money we buy things with, except the dishonest correlation that's forced On the job market by rigging it with arbitrary licensing laws and arbitrary hiring policies. For example, you can establish by law that the only people who can get into medical school are the people with lofty grade point averages, but that does not guarantee that the best people become doctors. The same unpleasant reality holds for lawyers or businessmen, engineers or school teachers we have yet another warning that forcing the collective time of the American young into a contest for symbols, whether money symbols or grade symbols, or similar prizes, is a mistaken course. And that warning is found, again, in the Proverbs of Solomon, in the haunting predictions of George Simmel, in the frightening reality of the American blood supply, and in the curious emergence of a national horde of lawyers who demonstrate our unhappiness. We do not trust each other, we do not like each other, we do not care for each other, we are unable to keep ourselves from encroaching on each other, and we cannot keep our promises. That is a recipe for social disaster. The new vision of American education is going to have to find a currency beyond money with which to pay its children to learn. My own experience after 15 years of sponsoring volunteer projects for each one of my students, rich and poor, white and black, is that a curriculum that seeks the common good will be an important part of that real currency. Not all of it, but an important part of it, and a currency that doesn't inflate as grades do one that holds its value. My own experience has been that every single academic question worth asking in any of the disciplines can be asked around a base of genuine service to genuine communities and can ride easily around an orbit of service. My own kids always did one full day of community service a week. They generally worked all alone in order to escape the culture of school children. They took on full adult responsibilities because I wouldn't allow the transaction to happen any other way. The community service program in District 4 that's been nationally trumpeted over this country as one of Ted Sizer's prize displays is an absolute fraud. It's two hours a week and then they spend two days talking about the wonderful things they did. My kids took on full adult responsibilities and they had a full adult work day even at the age of 12 or 13. And in almost every case they discharged their duties splendidly. Even in the first year I experimented illegally with such a program because I didn't bother to tell the school I was doing it, it worked. Indeed it worked better for the selfish, spoiled, indifferent children of prosperous families than it did for the lost children of the poor and the non-college bound, but I'll tell you that it worked for both. The differences were small. It worked for everyone, including the communities which allowed themselves to be served. It transformed children spiritually, morally, and academically. In Western society, over the past several thousand years, we've had at various times great social visions such as the one that I'm urging us to find now or the many that I'm urging us to find now. We had the pagan vision of Stoics like Marcus Aurelius. We had the aristocratic vision of Charlemagne and the Plantagenet kings. We had the Christian vision of St. Augustine, of Origen and of the martyrs. And all these grand conceptions for which curricula were developed had a service ideal at the bedrock of their foundations. Although many of the details of these competing life curricula contradicted each other, at the base of all three was a service ideal. A sense that we were obligated to each other inextricably, that we needed to self-impose duty if we expect to live easily with others, not to have multicultural classrooms where you're told to love your neighbor and the direct result of being told to love your neighbor is for you to despise your neighbor. That is the great secret we have lost sight of in schools built around a philosophy or a theology of materialism, a curriculum of competition and accumulation, a curriculum of self-aggrandizement, that these directives are prescriptions for bad individuals, bad communities, bad societies, and bad consciences. All the transforming visions we have human record of anywhere in the world ask a question beyond money. They ask, "What do I owe, and how do I pay that debt?" And in the answer of that question, I think the secret of our future lies. And these visions promise that if we will speak for those who cannot speak for themselves, if we will be generous to the poor, if we will seek the common good, that our lives will be filled with meaning. It worked for Solomon. It worked for my mother. It will work for the rest of us too. Thank you very much.